Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that excitement we share as we echo those words about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Thanks be to you for the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that all of our faith depends on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it's real. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's genuine. And thank you that it is the basis of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And thank you for the celebration that goes on today and every day because of what Jesus has done. Help us now as we look to your word to gain more reason for celebrating as we see more of your wisdom and more of your power, more of your sovereignty around to this entire world and the universe. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. How many of you like fishing? I would have to say a few. (laughs) Very few. We're going to see something that is not a fish story, although it's a story about fish. John 21, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day, as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I've never caught a fish in my life. I've made several half-hearted attempts, but I have yet to get my first bite. So certainly you wouldn't consider me to be an expert about fishing. But I do take it on good authority that if you're net fishing and you have a torn net, you won't catch many fish. Would you all agree with me on that? We don't have to be experts. I mean, that makes logical sense. 
I know a little bit more about people than I do about fish. I know that if you have torn people, you have a very big problem as well. This morning we're going to look at two incidents. One where the fishing net should have been broken and it wasn't. And one where people should not have been torn, but they were. And they brought it on themselves by their choices. It was something that was quite avoidable. My concern this morning is for any of you who are on the wrong side of a tear. Maybe the wrong side of the tear that is pictured on the screen. Where you're not on God's side, you're on the side where other things crowd in and push him away. That's my concern. My concern is that none of us would be torn from the things that are good, the things where we should be. Interesting that the last week of Jesus' life was filled with miracles. Let me name a couple of them. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead was the most significant, obviously, but there were many others. From noon until 3 p.m. on crucifixion day, there was a supernatural darkness that had fallen on the land. Now, can you imagine that? Think back to that time. In the middle of the crucifixion, Jesus was on the cross. There was a supernatural darkness that took place for three hours. There are a lot of people who are trying to come up with some kind of a natural explanation for that. Well, yeah, it was the uh, lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse or it was something, some conjunction of planets, something happened. You have to have a lot of faith to believe that that was coincidental. You have to have a lot of faith because there were a lot of miracles that were happening right exactly at that same time. We saw this morning at our sunrise service, the curtain in the temple was ripped in half at the moment that Jesus released his spirit. The curtain was ripped from top to bottom. And we learned this morning that that curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, very, very thick. I'd have to classify that as a miracle when that happened at exactly that time. And exactly when Jesus released his spirit, tombs were open, we heard. And there were people that came out of those tombs and started running around Jerusalem. They were righteous people, it tells us. And at that same instant, rocks were split. There was an earthquake. All of that happened at one and the same moment when Jesus released his spirit. Coincidental? Supernatural darkness the curtain being torn in half, the tombs being opened, the rocks splitting. No, it's not coincidence. One more time we see that God is completely in control of every aspect of everything that went on then, as well as everything that is going on now, as well as everything that will be going on forever. We also, looking at miracles that were taking place at that time, the miraculous accumulation of fulfilled prophecies that could not have been contrived couldn't have been by coincidence. One writer counts 456 of those prophecies that were fulfilled in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 456 of them. What are the odds of that happening? You couldn't even begin to figure it out. The number would be astronomical. It would fill the screen. I couldn't even begin to put it on there. The odds of that happening. We also find Jesus entered a locked room after his resurrection. 
where his disciples were gathered in fear. He entered that locked room without opening a door, without coming through a window. The molecular structure was completely different than it had been before. There was a glorified body that the Lord Jesus was in, and he came into that room. I'd have to classify that as a miracle as well. If you look at the verses just prior to where we picked up our reading this morning, in the last two verses of John chapter 20, very interesting words are there. Now, Jesus did, and John has written to this point, 20 chapters of things Jesus had did, including seven particular miracles, particular signs. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And he went on to say uh, that couldn't be in a book because all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. He said, but I've selected some of these, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have an appointment that God made with each one of us and himself here this morning to be absolutely certain that these things were written for a purpose. That purpose is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you don't believe that, God is saying, I'm laying out more evidence today. This is the accumulation of everything you've heard for your entire lifetime. But some among us have never said to the Lord Jesus, yes, I've heard that. I've heard it many times. But now I realize I need to have a personal relationship with you, the all-powerful, almighty Son of God. I need to invite you to be the Savior of my sins. It's not enough for me to intellectually know all of this. These things were written for a purpose so that you may believe so that you may put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a a very, very important part of Easter. It's not just all about clothes and dressing up and family and eggs and all of that. It's about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus being made personal to each one of us. So in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John comes up with a, a great statement there. But the miracles didn't stop with John 20, 31. These things had been written, but he had some more to say. He has one more chapter, and that's part of which we read in John 21, which includes the miracle of the 153 fish. Now, you could call this a miracle of many sorts. One thing that's going on is timing. And we'll see that as we go along. But 153 fish were caught. I find that interesting that they counted them. They counted those fish because what happened was so amazing. They wanted to be able to document all that was going on. One writer has said this with regard to the miracle of the fish. Normally, the fish that were netted in shallow water at night would migrate during the daylight hours to waters too deep to reach easily with nets, which is why Peter fished at night. And that's why they fished all night. They didn't catch any fish. They weren't expecting to catch any more. That's why they came in. That's why they stopped. And that's why if somebody were to come and say, well, no, let down your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll catch a whole lot of fish right now, a normal person would be incredulous at that, would be very, very skeptical and say, no, I am a professional fisherman. I understand when the fish are going to be there. There is no way we're going to catch any fish right now. So three points have to be argued that were going on in Peter's mind at that particular point when Jesus said, let your nets down on the right side of the boat. We fished all night without any success whatsoever. 
There's no point at all in fishing now that it's daylight. And thirdly, doesn't he understand this is hard work? This is hard work. We don't want to keep on doing this after we've already shown ourselves that there are no fish that are going to be around this day. Someone has said this. Someone has said it was backbreaking work to be a fisherman. It involved laying out a great net in a semicircle encompassing over a hundred feet, drawing it hand over hand, then repeating the procedure again and again. It was hard work that only strong men could perform. And again, they've been doing it all night. No chance to catch anything now. But then, all of a sudden, a miracle occurred. They caught some fish, more than they could haul in because of the great quantity. Another interesting thought, maybe you won't call this a miracle, but they were having a real hard time, all of them, getting those fish in. They were heavy. There were 153 of them. But did you notice a little bit later on, Peter went out and pulled them all in? Um, You can call that a miracle. I would call that a miracle. Somebody was really excited about the fact that this has got to be Jesus. He had superhuman strength at that particular point. John chapter 21, verse 11, there's something going on here too because it says, So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. The miracle, if you will, of the net not being torn. Why do I call that a miracle? In Luke chapter 5, there's a similar miracle Almost the exact same thing that happens. And Luke says the nets were breaking at that particular point. They had to use two boats. The nets were breaking at that at that time. Now we've looked at the word for torn all weekend, as we've been thinking, in fact, the last the last two weeks. It's the Greek word schizo that means to split or to sever or to tear open or to rend open. And we've already seen that the high priest tore his clothes. The Roman soldiers did not tear Jesus' tunic. Interesting that that word for torn shows up a lot, but only in the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, ten times schizo is used. Most of it is here in the last week of the Lord Jesus. The curtain of the temple was schizoed or torn in half from top to bottom. The rocks split, also schizo there. Now we have something else. This time it's something that is not schizoed, not torn, that should have been. And that's the nets. And I'd like for us to take a closer look at those nets right now for the next few moments. The nets not torn, according to John 21, verse 11. There are a lot of things getting torn. Some other things not being torn that should have been torn. But when we think of tear or torn, we're drawn to the Easter story. We're reminded of all the miraculous events and supernatural happenings associated with Jesus' death and resurrection. We have a personal Lord who's willing to meet those disciples who let him down. He's ready to meet them right where they are so that he can lift them up. They let him down. He wants to lift them up. And so he meets them where they decided to go, back to fishing. As I mentioned, this example of schizo, the net should have been torn. 153 large fish. Let me ask you a question. Where were the fish hiding all that night when the disciples 
caught nothing. Where were they hiding? What were they doing? Were they having a fish party somewhere? Why weren't they where they usually were? Why weren't they someplace where they could be caught? They were obeying the dictates of the Lord of all nature. Somehow, someway, they had been told to keep a low profile on that particular night. Jesus performed a miracle by allowing the fish to be caught according to his timing and in his choice of location by those of his choosing against all odds. Once again, we see Jesus in complete control of nature, of humanity, of the spirit world, of absolutely everything. You know what? He's in control of all the circumstances of every one of our lives, too. There aren't things happening by accident. There aren't things that are happening that are surprising him about you or about me. Makes me want to ask the question, well, then why do we fret so much? Why are we so anxious? Why are we like just everybody else around us wringing our hands in fear when we hear what goes on in the news, when we see what's happening in our own lives and our own circumstances? If we really truly believe that God is in control of absolutely everything, including everything about me, then why am I so uptight all the time? Why do I allow myself to, wa- myself to wallow in the misery just like other people who don't know the Lord Jesus himself? So we have a situation that goes on in our lives. Why are we complaining? Why are we discontented? Why doesn't anything satisfy? Why are we always looking for a little bit more or something else to it? Now, metaphorically speaking, so what if when we fish, sometimes we come up empty? Why do we get so agitated when plans don't at first seem to work out? Because God has proven himself over and over and over and over again, and yet it's as if he's got to prove himself every time anew because our faith hasn't grown at all as we look back on our lifetime and we look back at the faithfulness of God. I mentioned before, these are fish that shouldn't have been caught. The odds were against that. The net should have broken. But Jesus reversed the norm. He canceled the typical expectation. The fish were caught, and the net wasn't torn. And that was because Jesus could reverse the way things normally should be. This was a deja vu experience for the disciples. It was remarkably similar, as I mentioned, to Luke 5, 1 to 11. And perhaps this was Jesus' way of demonstrating to the disciples that it really was him. It really was him because they said, this is the Lord. John said that. This is the Lord. Because it was the same MO that they had back in Luke chapter 5. Everything was happening exactly the same way. There's only one person in the universe who could do what was just done. This has got to be the Lord Jesus himself. And you know what else? Jesus may have been reminding them that they were fishing for the wrong fish. He had commissioned them to be fishing for people. In fact, the last couple of verses in the Luke 5 incident read like this. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their nets to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus repeated this exact same miracle to let them know this was him. He was alive, and he had never rescinded that order for them to be fishing for people 
and inviting people into the kingdom of God. There's a whole lot to what goes on here in John chapter 21. But there's even more during the the thinking about the resurrection that has to do with tear or torn. There are torn people involved too. And you're saying, well, those references on the screen are in Acts. They're in Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 23. What does that have to do with the resurrection? What does that have to do with Easter? I think you'll see in just a moment. We continue to follow the theme of tear or tearing. Um, What we're seeing here, it's going to lead us to another split in Acts chapter 14, verse 4. Let me simply read this verse to you. It's on the screen for those of you who would like to look at that. But the people of the city were divided, schizoed, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. What had happened? The apostles had seen a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. They were immediately changed. They weren't the people that ran away. They weren't the people that were ashamed to be identified with the Lord Jesus. They saw the resurrected Savior had changed their lives. And then from there, they wanted to change the world. The same individuals who were huddled in fear, for fear the authorities would come and arrest them after Jesus had been arrested, these same people were now going in front of judges and kings and people in authority and saying, you killed the Son of God. You killed the Son of God. The one, the only one who can save us from our sins. And every one of them was martyred because of his faith in the Lord Jesus, with the exception of John. We aren't told exactly how he died, although they did try to martyr him. They boiled him in oil, and he escaped that, according to a lot of the traditions that came from that particular time. So we have a situation in Acts chapter 14, verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some were saying, we agree with the apostles. This makes sense. We want to know about this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But others were persecuting them. And there was a divide. People of the city were divided. Now, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. We're going to read about some more torn people. This is Paul before the Sanhedrin, the council of the Jewish people. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Uh, He didn't know maybe this is part of his poor eyesight. Maybe he didn't realize who it was that spoke that. There are a lot of reasons why this may have taken place. It's conjecture, though. It doesn't tell us. But he said, I did not know that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part, this is of the council here, that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was schizoed, divided. 
the assembly had parted in two. And we continue to see torn and tearing and renting being a part of the resurrection narrative that is here. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? To understand, the Sadducees don't believe in spirits or angels, and the Pharisees are now pitted against them. There's a division in the people. Well, what if an angel or a spirit spoke to this man? Uh, Maybe there's nothing wrong with him. You Sadducees have this all wrong because your limited beliefs. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be, and here comes tear again, would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God reminding Paul who's in charge, who's got the power, and it's obviously God himself. Ananias, the high priest, was one of those who sided with the Jews, not the apostles, in the division that existed among them. He was guilty of instant condemnation. He was instant of not, he was guilty of not listening to what had been said. He wasn't interested in communication. He didn't seem to be interested in fairness. He was guilty of failing to examine his own life before he judged someone else. And you know what? We do that all the time. We do that all the time. It's very easy to judge somebody else. It's very hard to judge ourselves. Sometimes it's only embarrassing. The conductor checking the tickets in a train to Brussels announced, everybody please get out at the next stop. You're on the wrong train. Passengers looked at each other in amazement. Finally, it turned out that it was the conductor himself who had boarded the wrong train. Sometimes it's not just embarrassing, sometimes it's tragic. A fatal accident involving the lives of four young people took place on one of the nation's highways. The evidence that alcohol was the culprit was found in the broken whiskey bottles among the debris and mangled bodies of the four youthful victims. The father of one of the girls, in frenzied anguish over the untimely death of his beautiful daughter, threatened to kill the one that had provided the four young people with liquor. But when going to the cupboard where he kept his supply of choice beverages, he found a note in his daughter's handwriting. Dad, we're taking along some of your good liquor. I know you won't mind. Ananias should have judged his own life as we should. Very easy to judge somebody else. But we've got to take a good look inside. Looking again at verse 7, where that word schizo appeared again, the assembly was divided. They were divided on the issue of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 10 tells us that the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn. Dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the apostle Paul took advantage of a truism spoken by Jesus that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Sanhedrin was almost evenly divided between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the majority party, but not by a lot. Let me compare the groups for just a moment, focusing mainly on the Sadducees. When I describe their beliefs or their practices, add to your thinking the Pharisees are going to be on the opposite pole 
from the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. You can pick that up from them. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection or angels or spirits or anything beyond what they rationally could see and experience and deduce. They accepted only the Pentateuch that was divinely inspired according to them, but not the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. They were a religious party that existed among the Jews during Jesus' time, along with the Essenes and the Pharisees. The Sadducees actually would make the Pharisees look good, as much as the bad press that the Pharisees get, the Sadducees were a lot worse. They were aristocratic. Jewish historian Josephus said, they only gain the well-to-do. They have not the people on their side. Their doctrine has reached few individuals, but these are of first consideration. The high priestly families belonged to the Sadducees. They were very rigid in judging offenders of the law. They were rigidly conservative in their political affairs. They didn't want to rock the boat. They collaborated with the Roman authorities. They were despised by the masses of people and the Pharisees who wanted to fight against the Romans, but not the Sadducees. They wanted to cooperate. They found any popular movement threatening, including Christianity. They denied the resurrection of the body, but not only denied the resurrection of the body, but they also denied that there would be rewards or punishment in the life to come. The emphasis on life in this world only was consistent with the Sadducees' concern with their position of power and status and wealth. Do you get a picture of them? That's why we say they're aristocratic. They deal in the higher echelons of people. There are some Pharisees that are on record in the New Testament as having come to the Lord Jesus and placed their faith and trust in him. There's no record of any Sadducee ever converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist greeted the Pharisees and the Sadducees as a brood of vipers. Looking at the Sadducees, we see a principle of life. Those who oppose God working in their lives will be seen to be foolish. No one likes to be confused, but these people were. They were confused by trading truth for prominence and for power and for prestige and a man-made substitute religion. It's no fun to be confused. They were very badly confused. The confusion of the Sadducees, as well as the confusion of the Pharisees, and we saw them coming together and being divided, is unnecessary because the message of the resurrection is so clear. I want to close by asking you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as I read these verses, think about the loving message that would have been coming to the Sadducees. And yet, beyond the Sadducees to each one of us today, each one of us who's going to be interacting with the truth of what's really, really significant. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel's the good news. I'm going to remind you of the good news. This is in a theological, religious sense 
The good news is how we can spend all of eternity with God in heaven. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Stop and let that sink in. I delivered to you what is of first importance. What I also received. He had to be taught this by the Lord Jesus. That Christ died for our sins. So here's the gospel. Here's what is of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then Paul goes on to talk about himself as being the least of the apostles. But you see the point that is here so far. Here's what's the gospel. I wanted to share the gospel with you. Here's what's of first importance, that the Lord Jesus Christ and it mentions it so clearly, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He died, he was buried, he arose, and then it says, and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared, and you total them up, it's 550-some people he appeared to after he was raised from the dead. The evidence is there. It's not a fairy tale. It's not wishful thinking. Those 551, when these were written, most of them were still around there. They could have called them as witness, and they said, I saw Jesus. But wait a minute, Jesus died, and we know he died. It's absolutely a factual account from the Roman soldiers and from Pilate and everyone else. Jesus was dead. No, he wasn't, or at least not for long. Keep reading in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Hey, Sadducees, how can you say that? How can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In other words, there's nothing left for us to hold on to. There's no hope. There's nothing for anybody to hang on to if Christ hasn't been raised. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Let's be sure, if need be, that as we think about that word tear and that word torn and we see how significant it is in the story of Easter, maybe some of us need to be torn from another way of life that is a life of confusion, a life of the Sadducees and the Pharisees that leaves the Lord Jesus Christ out of it. And the gospel, what is of first importance, is spelled out so very, very clearly. Let's pray together. As I pray, let me encourage you to pray along with me, particularly if you've never asked the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, if you've never acknowledged that it's more than religion that is at stake here, that it's not just thinking properly. So let me ask you to to pray this prayer 
if you mean this in your heart and if you've never expressed this to God before. Something similar to this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I ask that right now you would come into my life. Be my Savior. Save me from my sin. Help me to live the way you want me to live. And if you've prayed that prayer, and if that's the desire of your heart, the Lord Jesus tells us he stands at the door and knocks. He's knocking right now. And if you open the door, he says, I will come in. That's his promise. Again, that's not wishful thinking. That's the gospel. That's of first importance. This is a living, risen Savior who has that message he wants you to receive by faith. And if you've done that right now for the very first time, I'm going to ask you to do something. I don't often ask people to do this. But I want you to know that you made a decision. I want you to know that you've just invited Christ. And you can look back on this day and say, it was Easter 2017. I made sure that I had invited Christ to be my Savior. That risen Savior, everybody talks about and celebrates. And I could do it from afar, but I could never do it from being a follower of His. If you've received Christ as your Savior today, right now, by inviting Him into your heart, just raise your hand. It's not for my sake. Raise your hand. In fact, I'm not even looking around. But you raise your hand so you know that the raising of the hand isn't saving you, but the raising of the hand is telling you, I just made an act of my will, and I will remember this moment. Now I'd like to, for everybody to look up at me, if you will. If you need to know more about what it is to receive Christ, there's a little booklet that I have on tables here, two tables in the back. Beth, would you hold one of them up for me, please? Um, if you look and see it's a yellow, just pick that up. Share that with a friend who may not know the Lord Jesus. Or if you yourself want to know more, that will lead you step by step into what it is to know the Lord Jesus as Savior.